semester we're going to be in a book of the Bible that if you have been in or around Christianity at all, you've heard of it. Romans, the book of Romans. Um, it's just one of those books in the Bible, in all um, the many books of the Bible, that stands out. It's a go-to book for a lot of people, for a lot of different reasons. Uh, it was, it's a book that for a lot of people is how they came to faith. The way that Paul talks about the gospel uh, in vivid detail, um, which is that's what this book is known for. Uh, for Paul just boldly and very straightforwardly breaking down what the gospel is. And that's what I hope to look at with you this semester. And obviously, we're only going to have about 12 or 13 weeks in it together. Uh, so we're not going to be able to cover all of it probably the way that we would want. We're going to have to paint uh, in broad strokes. But I think we can do that. Um, because of the richness of this book. If we wanted to break it down two verses at a time, we could do that. But something tells me you probably don't want me to do that. As way of introduction tonight, we're going to look at the first 17 verses, which is Paul's introduction to his letter. And I wonder, I thought as I was trying to think about this, I wonder if you've ever been somewhere that takes your breath away. Or if you've ever been somewhere, it could be a big trip that you've taken, or maybe you've never taken a big trip. Maybe it's just um, a beach somewhere that you go to sometimes, or um, a certain area of the country that's just a lot different looking geography-wise than Macon, Georgia, right? And you go there for vacation or for whatever reason, um, and you're there, and, and maybe it's an exotic place, though, like globally exotic, somewhere really cool that I'm jealous that you've been there and I haven't. It's just one of those times where you get there and you kind of look around and you think to yourself, wow, I can't believe I'm here. Or it's just this feeling, right, where you look around and you're so captivated by your surroundings and where you are that you think to yourself, whether consciously or subconsciously, that you are going to make every effort to soak in every drop of every moment that you have in that place. And if you've ever kind of, if you, if you ever have had an experience like this, if you can think of a place that evokes this kind of feeling from you, maybe you can also um, sympathize with me the feeling of, it doesn't take but a couple of days of being somewhere like that, as magical as it is, as wow factor as it is, it only takes a couple of days for you to realize that the wow factor actually doesn't stick with you every moment that you're there. And the way that you realize that is that you'll just be going about your day because routine is kind of set in. And all of a sudden, you'll look up. If maybe you're in the mountains, you'll look up and you'll see the mountains and you realize, wow, I can't believe I'm in the mountains. Or if you're at the beach, you're maybe just reading a book and you're going about your day. But then you just sit back and you realize, man, I'm at the beach. I wish I could be here all the time, right? It's that moment that you realize that you forgot how special of a place that you were in, that you're... Um, that you, that you have the wow moment all over again and you want to soak up every drop. For me, this is very vivid in Acapulco, uh, Mexico. Last spring break, a group of students went to an orphanage there. We're going back this spring break. Um, it's going to be awesome. Acapulco is not what it used to be, but it is a beautiful resort town. Um, it's on the Pacific Ocean and... Um, it's a, it's a resort town built around a bay. And when you kind of fly over it to land there, you see the city sprawled out on, the hill, the, on a U-shaped hillside surrounding the bay. And you think, man, that's a gorgeous city. Right? And as you drive from the airport 
to the orphanage, you kind of drive lengthways along the coast and you're kind of beholding it all again. And you're like, man, I just want to soak up every moment of my being here. But it doesn't take but a day or two of being at the orphanage and going about the routine of the day. You wake up, you eat breakfast, um, you put on your work clothes, you go to the work site, you do the work, you have lunch, you do siesta, the kids get back from school, you do like a VBS thing with the kids, you have dinner with them, you have Devo, you go to bed. It doesn't take but a few days of that, and you just, you've kind of forgotten about the beauty of the place where you're at. But what happened for us is on our off day, we went on this yacht, it was awesome, out into the bay of Acapulco. And I don't even think I was really thinking about it until we got out there and you turn around and you look back at the city all sprawled out staring back at you. And all over again, the same feeling I had from the instance when I flew over it, all of a sudden I'm recaptivated again. Wow, this is a beautiful place. And it's like the routine and the normalcy of just a couple of days there had kind of, I had forgotten it. Didn't make it any less true. I just hadn't experienced it in the same way. It's a term I came across as I was thinking about and preparing about going through Romans with you this semester. And it was one, it was called being Romansed out. Um, and I'd never heard that before, but it makes so much sense, right? Because Romans is the go-to book for anyone. You want to learn more about Christianity? Go to Romans. You want to get better at doing your quiet time? Go to Romans. You want to learn more about the Bible? Go to Romans. Romans, Roman, Roman. If you grew up in church, it's probably, uh, you probably, if statistics are true, you had a different youth director every year or two, and their probably first series they did with you was Romans every time. And so you heard it for like five or six years. And you as a Christian growing up in church, you're Romans out. You know it's beautiful, you know it's true, you know you need it, but surely the Bible has something else, right? Here's what I want to say in some as we read the first 17 verses here, and this is what I want to frame Uh, how we think through this as, as an introduction. This is what Paul wants to tell us in the first 17 verses. Paul wants to tell us that he has big news that he's not ashamed of about how to be right with God. Sounds rather Christian-y, right? He wants to tell us that he has big news that he's not ashamed of about what it means to be right with God. All right, let us frame that. Let me pray and then let's, let's read this. Father, as we come to you tonight, as we do every week, we ask for you to open your word to us. That you would speak to us, that you would send Holy Spirit into our hearts. That we might see, taste, and know that you are good. Father, we can't do this on our own. We need you. We pray that you would answer our prayers. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's read these first 17 verses together. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. 
to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to Everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Paul has big news that he's not ashamed of about what it is to be right with God. First, he's got big news. Just want to, you see four times in these first 17 verses, Paul keeps using this word gospel. Four times he uses it. Look at verses, put your eyes to the, to the verses there, either in your handout or in your Bible. Verses 1 through 6, he says his whole life's work is about the gospel. Verses 8 through 15, he says... How much he yearns and prays for the opportunity to come to Rome to preach the gospel in person to these people, the Romans. In verse 16 and 17, he gives the gospel in a nutshell. What everybody is uh, uh, agreed that this is the thesis of the whole letter of Romans, uh, verses 16 and 17. Gospel, right, is such a Christian-y term. Right? It's just automatically associated with Christianity, uh, and for good reason, I think. But, here's the thing, it is not a term unique to Christianity. It is not a term that Christian writers, scripture writers, came up with. The Greek word there, like you really care, but um, the Greek word is euangelion. It literally means good news or glad tidings. It was used in Koine Greek, common Greek. It was used in conversation. I've got some good news for you. So and so did this. I've got some glad tidings to bring you. Everything's going to be okay. It literally just meant good news. It was also a, a word used in the Roman context to denote the the birth or ascension of an emperor, right? It was like the official news release of the day. You would send forth the gospel, the message, the good news of some ascension or, or um, gaining of power of, a, of an emperor or a, a victory in battle. Euangelion, literally, good news. That's where we get the English word evangelist or evangelism, right? Giving good news. So it's not a term unique to Christianity, But what cannot be denied is the central place that this work took in the New Testament, that this word took in the New Testament church. And there's good reason for this being the case, because here it is. The message of Jesus and the message about Jesus is good news in the truest 
sense of the word. Because the gospel is about something that has happened. It's good news. There is something that has happened that you need to know about. The angels are the first ones to use this word in the New Testament when they appear to the shepherds and say, Do not fear, for we bring you glad tidings. You and Gelion, which will be for all the people, for born this day in the city of David, is a Savior, Christ the Lord. And you see, this is at the outset what, Christ, what separated Christianity from all the other religions of the world. And to this day, I would say it's safe to say that it separates Christianity from all the other religions of the world. All other religions, they have good things to say. But Christianity has good news. There's something that has happened and you need to know about it. Look, uh, start in verse two with me really quickly. Just look through the, look at what we learn about the gospel in this passage. Verse two, we learn that it was promised beforehand. Paul is saying, this is not something new. If you know the Bible at all, Paul says, you will see that in Jesus, this is not something new. Peter, the first Holy Spirit inspired sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Do you know what, Paul, what Paul, Peter does? He preaches the gospel. You know how he does it? By using the Old Testament. Over and over again. This is not something new. Verse 3, what is it about? It is about God's Son. It is about how Jesus of Nazareth, physically descended from King David, is the eternally begotten Son of God. Verse 5, this good news does something, it accomplishes something, and it brings about, when it is believed in, it brings about the obedience of faith. Again in verse 5, it is for all the nations. Verse 16, it is the power of God. It is. Is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And verse 17. Because in it. The righteousness of God is revealed. Paul is trying to get something across at the outset. I've got good news. And it is a big deal. It's a big deal. But here's the thing. For many of us, we're going to have to admit something at the beginning of this semester. If you're going to come back and if you're going to go through this with me, either because you love the gospel or because you're interested or just because you're willing to come back for no other good reason. We're going to have to admit something. For many of us, Christianity or the gospel, and I stole this illustration, but I like it, um, has become or has been to us a lot like the library. Right? Sorry, it's that way. It's not that way. It's that way. Um, It's become to us a lot like the library, right? Um, It's a big deal. But really, the biggest reason it's a big deal is because it takes up so much space. Right? Both literally and figuratively for you as a student on this campus. Maybe it's because you grew up with it. Maybe it's because you have a lot of friends that identify as Christians you know, you're glad Christianity's there, but you really only feel the urge to go to it when you need it, right? When it's necessary, when it feels good, but it really doesn't take much for you to walk out the door. Here's a challenge for you as we begin the semester, as we begin looking at this letter. I have a challenge for you that I want you to ask yourself. If you have been in or around Christianity for whatever reason, and you've heard good things, I just want to ask you this. Have you heard good news? 
You know what's coming if somebody comes to you and says, I've got really good news. So my question is, you've, you've been, maybe you've been around Christianity or maybe you think you know Christianity. And you've heard good things all your life, maybe. But have you ever really heard good news? Something that you really want to know. All the way inside. Paul has good news and it's a big deal. In verse 14, 15, 16, he says, one, he's under obligation to it. Two, he's eager for it. And three, he's not ashamed of it. And he's about to spill a whole lot of ink about it. And that's what we're going to look at this semester. It's the reason this book stands out. Because it's about the gospel. It's a big deal. It's big news. Second thing Paul says, well, he says a lot of things, but the second thing we're going to look at, he says he's not ashamed. He has big news. And in verse 16, he says he's not ashamed of it. Now, do you find it interesting that Paul says that? As we read that and we got to verse 16, maybe you're really familiar with that verse, maybe you're not. Regardless of where you are with this book and this verse, do you find it interesting that Paul says, I've got some really big news and I really want to share it. And by the way, I'm not ashamed of it. Why does he say that? And again, whether you're familiar with Romans and, or Paul or the gospel or anything, you don't say that you're not ashamed of something, right? Unless some people think there is reason to be ashamed of it. You get that? You don't say that you're not ashamed of something unless there's something about it that might tempt you to be ashamed of it. Now, most of you, <laughs> if you're churched at all, I have a sneaking suspicion that you think this is the point where I say, well, Paul wasn't ashamed and you shouldn't be ashamed either. Let's pray and go bowling. <laughs> One, come back. Or two, read the rest of Paul's letters. He never says that. He never says that. Paul never makes that application. And the context here, yes, it can apply to how much or when you share the gospel. There's application to be made there. But that's not the context of what Paul's talking about. Paul is talking about the content of the gospel. There's content. It is about something. I'm not ashamed of it. I'm going to tell the truth about it. I'm going to say everything that it's about. And I'm going to say everything that it means. Because God, Jesus himself, actually, if you read Acts 9, met me one day and told me that this would be my life's work. I'm not ashamed of it. Because what Paul knows, get this, what Paul knows is that if you really know this gospel, then you've been tempted to be ashamed of it. Whether individually, personally, or externally, publicly. If you really have heard this message, you've been tempted to be ashamed of it, right? If you're going to deal with this gospel, if you're going to explore it, if you're going to get to know it, if you're going to lay hold of it with your life, then you must prepare yourself for the ways in which it is easy to be ashamed of the gospel. Meaning, you need to know what it really says. And you need to really know how it applies to you. And you really need to know how it applies to the world. 1 Corinthians, Paul does something really interesting at the beginning of this letter that he writes to the church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says something pretty awesome. I love this verse. He says, he's telling the Corinthians that when I was with you, I decided to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. 
The gospel, right? To which all of us youth group kids go, yeah, that's awesome, let's do that, right? That's what we want our ministry to be about. Amen. But in the next breath, Paul says something really interesting. He says, and I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in trembling. I decided to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified, and I did it in weakness, in fear, and trembling. Why? Why why would it elicit that? Well, he tells us in 123, he says that his ministry is about preaching Christ crucified. And he says, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. Now you hear that and you're like, okay, over my head. Stumbling block to Jews, um, foolishness to Gentiles. Let me put this in everyday terms. Jews, the specially called people of God, set apart by God for himself as his covenant people. These are the people in the world that knew because of where and how they were born as Jews that they were the people of God because Abraham was their father. The Jews, of which Jesus was one, by the way. And Paul was one, by the way. Gentiles, everybody else. Get it? Jews, specially called people of God. Gentiles, everybody else. Which is, I'm assuming is 98% of us in this room. Maybe more than that. So when Paul says the gospel is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, what he means is it's an obstacle to those who thought they already had it figured out. We're Jews. God called us. We think we know what we're doing. An obstacle to those who already thought they had it figured out. And he says it's stupid to everybody else because they don't think they need anything. Stumbling block and foolishness. So I just want to make this application here that, there, that we've got to understand that this is the case with the gospel. That it's tempting to be ashamed of it. And there's two main ways I think we can identify by way of illustration that we are tempted to be ashamed of it or ways I want to illustrate it here for us at Mercer. And the first one is this. The true gospel, if you come back and if you really explore this for yourself as it comes to us in Scripture, the true gospel is hard to believe for achievers. The true gospel is hard to believe for achievers, of which I list an overwhelming majority of you in this room. Achievers. Look, this is an amazing university with amazing opportunities for you to experience and better yourself at every term. And I am more and more jealous of you with each passing semester with how awesome your college experience seems to be. I was clueless in college. I did nothing. Um, Nearly all of you have worked hard to be here, worked hard to get the scholarship you've gotten, um, worked hard to keep that scholarship, worked hard to prove that you belong, worked hard to set yourself up for your future after you leave this place. And the true gospel is daily going to be a struggle for you. Because how in the world are you going to believe that there is something that you absolutely need and you cannot do one thing to earn it? How are you going to deal with the fact that when your failures confront you through the gospel, that the message you're going to get is that you cannot do one thing about it? That the salvation found in this gospel is absolutely free and absolutely not one iota earned. 
Because if that's true, it means no matter how hard you've worked and no matter how good your intentions have ever been, you will still fall short. And you will still need something completely outside of yourself. It is going to be a struggle for you to believe that daily. The second way that the gospel will be hard for us here at Mercer is the true gospel is hard for those accustomed to having it their own way. And I lump myself so fully into this one. Our generation, y'all, we have been raised to have every single thing in our life our own way. This gospel is of God promised beforehand and it concerns his son, meaning it is on his terms. And that the only way to God is through this Jesus. And there's no other way. None. It is the overwhelming, explicit testimony of this book from front to back. And on top of that, that salvation was accomplished by a suffering and serving Savior, not a conquering and destroying one. And so if you want to follow Him, you're going to have to suffer and serve with Him, meaning... It's not as safe and comfortable as you've been led to believe. Generations in America, especially amongst us white Protestants, we have been taught to believe and expect that if we do good enough, everything will be safe and comfortable for us. I was going to bring politics in there. I'm going to skip that. It's a temptation to be ashamed of this gospel and you may find yourself struggling against it. But here's the thing. If you are struggling with it, I can promise that you're probably hearing it correctly. But Paul says he's not ashamed of it because it's good news. Why? Paul has big good, has big good news. Paul has good news, big news, that he's not ashamed of about what it is to be right with God. Here's the sum and the punch of the whole letter, okay? It's the big reveal, verse 17, that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. In the gospel, this is the kicker. This is why it's so important. This is why he's committed his whole life. This is why he cannot wait to get to Rome to preach to these people because he's never been there. And he wants to preach the gospel because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. That's what he wants to talk about. That's what he's going to spend the next, the rest of his letter talking about. Verse 17, the righteousness of God. If you're familiar with the Bible, the righteousness of God... It's not really a phrase that really jumps off the page because it's kind of all over the Bible. Um, and if you're not familiar with the Bible, it could just be one of those kind of Christianese um, phrases that you've heard, but it doesn't really mean much to you. You don't really care. Um, it's easy to think when you see righteousness of God, uh, kind of easy to think uh, we're kind of talking about an attribute of God, that God is righteous. And that's definitely true. God is righteous. He does possess. He is in and of himself by his nature perfectly righteous. But remember, this is about the gospel. This is something for us, okay? It's for anyone who believes. It is from faith, for faith. It's to be received by us. It's a power, not it brings power, not it has power. It is a power. 
What is it? What is it? What is the righteousness of God that Paul is talking about? One of the most fascinating, if not terrifying things that Jesus says in any of the four written gospels in your New Testament comes in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. This is what uh, Peter, uh, Peter, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to this. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of my commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, please don't miss this. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't qualify that. He says it because he meant it. Unless you have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, the most righteous people in existence in the world at the moment when Jesus said that, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you will not even step one foot into my kingdom. I thought your yoke was easy and your burdens light. That doesn't seem to jive with that. Here it is. What Jesus is saying, what the rest of Scripture attests to, is that there is a righteousness that God requires of us. There's a standard of righteousness that God requires of us for us to be righteous in His sight. For us to have right standing with Him. For us not to be in His debt. For us not to owe Him anything. There is a standard of righteousness that is required of us All of us, any and every person that has ever existed, there's a standard of righteousness that every single one of them must meet because God is God and he's their creator. And Jesus says that standard of righteousness is, get it, perfect. Perfect. But here's the weird thing. Read the rest of the gospel for yourself. Because as you read the rest of the Gospels, what's weird is that one, Jesus says that, but two, when you read through it and you understand the people around him, it is always the people who seem to everyone else to be the closest to meeting that requirement hate Jesus. And when I say hate, I mean hate Jesus. And the people in society that seem to be the furthest from ever coming close to it are the ones that flock to Jesus. And not only do they flock to him, Jesus welcomes and accepts them with open arms. What gives? I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation for all people who believe. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Revealed. Say this in closing, I'm convinced... That one of the hardest things for any of you to admit, as I've watched you for three years now, 
whether admitting it to others or admitting it to yourself, and it's this. You are exhausted. Your whole generation is exhausted. And I don't mean, oh my gosh, I got so much homework, I'm exhausted. I don't mean that. I'm talking much more existentially, much deeper, like in your soul. You're exhausted. And you're exhausted by the performance-driven life that you have been expected to measure up to your entire lives. And the most heartbreaking part of it all is that the church has been no exception of that expectation of you. Ask yourself, ask yourself tonight, if you believe in a God, do you assume yourself to be on the right side of that God? And if so, why? And if so, what keeps you there? It's the question I leave you. I want you to take this with you if you never come back. What if this rightness with God is not something you achieve, but something that's been revealed? Meaning, in other words, what if it's not a righteousness that you work harder at, but a righteousness you're supposed to receive? And when you do, Nothing will ever change it. Nothing. Martin Luther, commonly recorded in history as uh, the one who sparked the Reformation. A little bit more complicated than that, but don't want to take his fame away. Sorry, Martin. Um, He points to this letter. He points specifically to this verse, 117, as the verse in which when he read it and thought about it, the gospel for the first time in his life set him free. This is what he said about his earlier life as a monk. I was a good monk. If ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. He was, a, he was funny. <laughs> go, read, go Google some Martin Luther quotes. They're kind of ridiculous. Anyway, Luther testifies that in his time as a monk, He was driven yet tormented daily with the thought of a righteousness that fell short. And so he spent his every waking moment making sure it was not true. And he identifies Romans 117 as the moment the gospel set him free. And he says this, I took the righteousness of God to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and acts righteously in punishing the unrighteous. But here... Here I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he makes us righteous by faith. Thereupon I felt myself reborn and to have gone through the open doors into paradise. What if, what if what really is revealed in this letter and the entirety of Scripture is good news. That if you really knew it, you would want to hear it over and over and over and over and over again. 
find it interesting in Romans, in verse 8, he says, I've heard of your faith, I know you believe. Yet in verse 15, he says, I can't wait to preach the gospel to you. What if there's something there that if you knew it, if you heard it, if you believed it, you could sing with the fullest assurance, as we will in a moment, come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace, streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. It's good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this good news. And we thank you that you are its author, that you are its subject, that you are its object, that it's all you, and you've given it to us through your Son. We just want to begin even to know him better tonight, we pray in his name. Amen.